Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. to the Savvy Entrepreneur. We are broadcasting here on WLCB 101.5 FM from the greater Chicago, Milwaukee area. I'm your host, Doris Nagel, and I am a crazy self-professed entrepreneur myself, and I love helping other entrepreneurs. I've counseled lots of startups and small businesses as part of my law and consulting businesses, and I've also started or helped start at least nine different startups. And I have made a lot of mistakes along the way. I love to help share with other entrepreneurs what I've learned and to find other experts and entrepreneurs who are also willing to share their advice, their insights, and their resources. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, suggestions. If there's a topic you'd like to hear about. You've got an issue or a challenge. I'll try to get you an answer. And if you want to be a guest or just share a great resource, be sure to email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at lakesradio.org. The show will be better for your input. And now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce our esteemed guests for today. With us by phone are Drs. Aaron Olson and Merdad Ajman to share the story of Novo Moto, a Madison-based startup that was founded in 2015. They're a small company with huge and inspiring goals. Novomoto supplies off-grid solar power in the Democratic Republic of the Congo with the goal of bringing clean electricity to 1 million families by 2026. They estimate the market is pretty darn huge. 25 billion, no less, an energy market in sub-Saharan Africa. And they not only have an interesting business model, but they're already making the lives better for hundreds of people. The two founders have graciously agreed to come on the show to share their journey. Just a few words of introduction. Aaron was born in the Democratic Republic of Congo, but raised in Madison, Wisconsin. He earned a bachelor's in mechanical engineering and then got both a master's and a PhD in engineering mechanics and astronautics. During his undergraduate education, he studied abroad at, and I'll probably uh, butcher this because my high school and college French is not very good, but at the Institut Supérieur de l'Aéronautique et l'Espace in Toulouse, France for a semester. He had internships with NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and NASA Langley Research Center and was part of the 2011 winning NASA Exploration Habitat Competition student team that built an expandable module for NASA's Deep Space Habitat prototype. He stays connected to NASA and has participated in several projects since then with them, and maybe we'll have a chance to even have him talk a little bit about that if we get a chance. Now, his co-founder, Medad, was born and raised in Iran. 
he uh, also has an undergraduate and a master's degree in mechanical engineering and worked as an engineer at an energy-based company in Iran, but then went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison to get his PhD in engineering mechanics at the Materials Research Science and Engineering Center. Merdad was involved with entrepreneurship at the UW-Madison and got his minor, in fact, in entrepreneurship there. Just another word about Novomoto. They have been part of a number of pitch competitions and have either won or placed in a number of them, not the least of which is the 2018 Wisconsin Governor's Business Plan Competition. And for our listeners who aren't in Wisconsin, that's an annual competition that the governor's office sponsors for small businesses. And it is a big deal in Wisconsin. So they have won numerous prizes and what they're doing obviously is important and also pretty fascinating. So with that, Aaron and Merdad, thanks so much for being on the show today. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur. Thank you, Doris. It's a pleasure to be with you today as a part of your show and hello to all of those listening in as well. Yes, well, thank you as well, Doris. It's a pleasure uh, to be here and hello to everybody who's listening. <laughs> First, I have to ask you to share what the heck exactly is Novomoto? It's a very cool name, but what does it do exactly and and what's your business model? Aaron, why don't you why don't you kick it up? You both could probably talk at length about this, but why don't you kick it up? <laughs> I'd love to. Yeah. So Novo Moto in itself, the word is actually a portmanteau. So the Novo comes from new in Portuguese and Moto is actually a word for fire or energy in both Lingala and Swahili. These two languages happen to be two of the most widely spoken languages in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So that's where the name comes from. Now, what Novo Moto is actually all about as a company is that we are an off-grid energy company. We view ourselves as a utility that steps into areas where electricity is either non-existent or functions poorly in a way where people need a different service. So what we do is we offer solar electricity, clean, sustainable, and reliable solar electricity to our customers. And we offer it to them in a way where they get a great experience in the sense that not only do they get the electricity, but they also get a number of appliances that make that electricity useful. And what I think is most important for us is that our customers also get access to that in a way that's affordable to them at a price that is sometimes less, near or close to what they're spending on kerosene lamps, candles, and flashlights that too many people in Congo and other countries in sub-Saharan Africa are forced to rely on because of the lack of reliable and consistent electricity. Let me interrupt you just really quickly here because I want to make sure that you help give our listeners a picture of what life is like for some of the people uh, in the Congo. I mean, for those of us who sit here, you know, in North America and we grumble when our internet connectivity is lost for a few moments or uh, there's an electrical storm and we might lose power for an hour, help give people an idea of what, electrical reliability is like in the Congo and how that changes people's lives. Yeah. 
So the problem that our company looks to solve is one where in the entire country of Congo, there is only access to electricity of about one and a half gigawatts. To put that in perspective, Dane County has access to a little bit more than that for a population far less. So Congo has over 80 million people now, and the population of Dane County is, is somewhere around a million people at this point. So it's, it's a great difference. And what it means for somebody or a home, a family in Congo is that those who don't have access to the grid are basically disconnected from all modern forms of appliances and, and everything that comes with that. So again, people are forced to rely on kerosene candles and flashlights. And then to charge their phones, they're forced to go to kiosks where people have diesel generators, which means that they're leaving their phones there for hours on end, being potentially outside of communication of their friends, family, and colleagues for, for a long uh, period of time. Interesting. So, um, my dad, I know Aaron mentioned that you provide solar power generators economically and also appliances. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, one of the bigger uh, differences that we provide to our customer is the capability to allow them to pay for their systems in installments. So what we figure out was that a lot of customers already know about the solar products in the market in Congo, but they can't, they don't have the cash to provide upfront to have those systems. So all of our systems have a technology inside them that's called pay as you go. That technology allows customers to pay installments on a weekly or monthly basis as they wish and every time they make a payment, they receive a code as a text message on their phone. So they put the code into their, their batteries, and then that enables the system for the period of the time that they paid for. And they keep paying for this system until the contract is over. And after that, they own the system, meaning that they don't need to pay any money afterwards to have access to the electricity. And then we mm -hmm. step in and offer them upgrades. So this is the bigger difference that is enabling them to have access to these products as opposed to what's already in the market now. Ah, well, and I know Aaron mentioned that there were appliances too that you provide them. How, how does that work? Yes, so basically what we found is that electricity is important, but what is more important to our customer is actually the experience they get out of our packages. So at this point, we have two tiers of packages that we offer to the customers. The tier one package is the lighting and phone charging. So that package not only comes with the solar panel and the batteries that are connected to that panel, but also it has three LED lights that comes with the package and also a phone charger that allows customers to, phone, to charge their phones on a daily basis. Now, mm -hmm. the second tier package that we offer comes with a TV as well. So we have a DC TV that is very efficient, much more efficient than AC TVs that most of us use at our homes. And also that enables the customers to have access to lights, phone charging, and also getting access to TVs. Now we are thinking about other packages that can um, offer fans and radios, larger mm -hmm. TVs, and in the future, fridges and freezers as well for businesses. Very cool. So, all right, so who are your clients? Are they individual families or are you selling to 
distributors who then maybe cover a particular village or area. Aaron? Sure, yeah, our, our customers are small businesses and families. So for both our tier one and tier two packages, as Murdad described, uh, we make both those systems available. And the way that we offer those systems is through our own sales ambassador network, where we have individuals who go around particular regions around Kinshasa to sell the systems, as well as independent agents who work with us more on a sort of a free basis, if you were a more, more freedom as to how they operate, along uh, with some institutions. So gotcha. we have uh, a number of clinics, which we recently started, that are helping us market our systems as well. So that was under a partnership with a nonprofit organization based in Madison called Strides for Africa. In that partnership, we were able to do installs in 25 different clinics, and those clinics agreed to help market for us uh, based on receiving a free kit for lighting and phone charging. And um, there are two things I think that are amazing that came out of that. One is that the healthcare being provided, the quality of the healthcare due to the improved lighting and communication that those clinics have has improved greatly. And second, the opportunity for us to market, obviously. Yeah, I, I just am imagining, though, in a country with 80 million people, with some of your customers maybe being a little difficult to reach, particularly at certain times of the year, trying to scale your sales efforts is probably a challenge in and of itself, not just not just the idea and deploying it and getting paid, but actually being able to scale this to reach the kind of numbers that you're hoping to reach. Madat, uh, do you want to comment on that? Uh, you're right. So we are operating in areas that some of them are not even by the main road. Sometimes it's a challenge for us to get access to those places. Uh, now, to overcome these barriers, uh, we have our teams go around with mopeds for, for the areas that uh, basically uh, mopeds with cargoes or cars don't have access to. So we are trying to be flexible, and especially, as you mentioned, in the rainy season, that's more challenging because uh, the roads are not in the best condition, as you can imagine, and it's it's, uh, it's a very uh, amazing job that our team does to make sure that our customers are getting served and serviced in the best possible way that we can. Well, right. And I, I'm guessing there's not only the selling, but then you probably have to have some kind of mechanism to troubleshoot. So somebody says, my unit's not working or... I don't know what all the things that could go wrong, but you probably at some point, whatever could go wrong probably has gone wrong, right? That's an interesting point. Yeah, we've uh, had some good lessons along the way in terms of how customer service uh, actually needs to be performed. Some things have surprised us as well in terms of the rare cases where some customers choose to sort of circumvent our system to be able to do something that we didn't quite anticipate. But those are all things that are great for us. It allows us to learn and improve on our processes and, and allow us to get a better understanding of how to scale up our operation. Okay. Well, Aaron, you got to hold that thought because that sounds like a very interesting story that you're referring to. But before we get there, I really want to know a little bit more about how you got this idea and how, how did the two of you come together? I mean... You come from different parts of the world. How did the two of you meet? How did you get the idea for this business? 
But now, why don't you start? Yes, uh, it's it's actually an interesting story that uh, it's uh, sometimes think back about it, and it's it's very amazing how we basically got the opportunity to meet. So basically, we both were doing our PhDs at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And funny enough, we were at the same department. However, we've never met each other and we didn't know each other. We both had the passion to do our minors in the business school in entrepreneurship. And in one of the classes that we were taking toward the, our, our degrees, our minors, we got the chance to be in the same team. And someone else in our team had uh, an idea about electrification of developing countries, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. So that course was basically a platform for us to, first of all, know myself at least, know about the problem that existed for over a billion people in the world that I, I had no idea about it. And second of all, to go through and do some research to figure out what are the possible options and what you're doing right now and if there's anything better than that. So that was a basic uh, understanding for, for all of us in the team to learn about the problem. And after that class finished, basically um, Aaron had the chance to go back to Congo as an adult. And he saw the problem firsthand, the same problem that we were discussing in a class. So after he came back, he reached out to all the team members and said, look, this is a huge problem and at the same time an opportunity for all of us to be involved. And at the time, other people in the team had other commitments and they couldn't join. But I was happy and I said, yes, let's do it. I would love to be part of it. And that was the beginning of Novo Moro. We started to basically do the formalities and uh, have the company registered in Wisconsin. Well, it's an interesting story, but I'm going to guess that there are lots of student entrepreneur ideas that really go nowhere. I, I can certainly speak from, you know, I'm sitting around having a bottle of wine with some friends and we come up with some really cool business ideas. But for the most part, nothing ever happens. So how did you know you were on to something that was a real business opportunity. Aaron? Well, uh, oh, okay, go ahead. <laughs> well, no, 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 my gosh, go ahead. You, go ahead. You take it and then okay. Aaron will chime in. So yes, you're right. Uh, that was basically uh, the feedback that we got from a class called WAVE at UW-Madison, who that the class was taught by uh, Dan Oshevsky. So yeah. we were presenting our basically idea as a project in the class. And at the end of that class, there was a, a jury that basically was listening to all of our pitches. And they gave us a thumbs up that they said, this is an interesting idea. And um, if you are interested, there might be something in there. And we basically continue to um, think about it. And there was an opportunity that came out of nowhere. Basically, there was an event in Chicago hosted by Clean Energy Trust that uh, we got that email for submitting the cases from the business school. And we just said, let's send our material. And we sent it. We passed the first and second round of screening. And we were invited to pitch in Chicago. And we did so. 
and in one night we got uh, three awards for ninety thousand dollars out of the competition. PowerPoint. Wow. So Congratulations! That that's amazing. That's a fortune yes. for a lot of startup businesses. So that's a job well done, guys. Thank you. And at that time we said, okay, maybe there is real opportunity here that people are interested, and that's how we got more serious about it. Fantastic. Well, I just want to make a quick plug that the director of the Weiner Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Wisconsin-Madison was recently a guest on the show, Dan Olszewski. And so people who might want to listen and learn more about it should go to my show page, my radio show page or my podcast feed and look for it because uh, Dan gives a great interview and shares a lot of the resources and support and classes and other resources that the UW-Madison offers for students. And, you know, Aaron and Murdad being being on the show and where they are with their company is living proof that the, the process really, really does work and have some great successes. So beyond the, the pitch competition and $90,000, I know that sounds like that's a lot of money, but, um, you know, most of us who have tried to run a business know that Whatever sounds like a lot of money is never enough. So how have you how have you gone about sustainably trying to fund the company? Aaron, why don't you take that? So outside of the Clean Energy Trust competition, we continue to be involved in different business plan competitions, not only at the University of Wisconsin at Madison, but also in other places across the country. That included the Clean Tech University Prize competition, which was in Denver in in late June of 2016, along with some local competitions at the university. And on top of that, we were able to bring in some investment in the way of convertible notes from investors around the, the Madison area. So um, that all helped. And we were also able to bring in some amount of, uh, of debt as well. The Wisconsin community has been very great with that. There's an organization called WIBIC who was able to provide us with uh, a loan to be able to secure more equipment that we could get into the country. And more recently, to be able to continue our growth and, and take our initiative to the next level, we've opened up a crowdfunding campaign where we're taking equity investments through a platform called WeFunder. And how did you decide on WeFunder? I'm just curious because that has got to be one of the most common questions my startup clients ask me, they're like, well, should we do crowdfunding? And if so, what, which one should we use? And, or they think that it's just something that you throw out there. Um, actually, last week's guest was Steve Deinhardt, who runs a Wisconsin-based crowdfunding platform called Lula Pitch, which he's basically kind of shuttered just because he's been so frustrated with some of the people who have tried to use the crowdfunding platform thinking you know, you just throw it up there and voila, the money just starts rolling in, right? I, but I'm guessing it's not quite that easy. So talk a little bit about how you decided on that platform and the process you've used to maximize your success with crowdfunding. Right, So basically, in order to choose the platform, uh, we did some search online we found that there are a few or a handful uh, platforms that are more successful compared to all the options that are in the market. 
and we did some quick search to see what has been the experience of other companies with these platforms. There's some data out there, some reports that compares these platforms. So we had did a little bit of a research and then we reached out to WeFunder as, as actually the first company uh, or platform on that list. And they are very nice people and they basically provided a great platform and we were interested in working with them and even the fact that they're one of the top five platforms in many areas, we chose to work with them. So Aaron, what would you suggest to companies based on your experience with crowdfunding? I mean, I don't know, would you consider your crowdfunding initiative a success? And if so, what do you attribute that to? Or if not, if it wasn't as successful so far, what would you do differently? Great question, Doris. Uh, so let me first say that there are a lot of flavors to crowdfunding. And I think it's very important for a company to take a look at what they're trying to accomplish in their crowdfunding efforts. If a company is looking to get traction in terms of finding new customers, then I think the platforms like Kickstarter and Indiegogo are probably the places that they should go. If they're looking for donations, if it's not really a company, maybe a, a nonprofit, for example, or a, maybe a personal endeavor or something like that, then there are other platforms that are more geared for that. Things like GoFundMe and, and other right. platforms similar to right. that. And then WeFunder is really in a different class. So, and I say that because the purpose of it is very different than those other platforms that I just mentioned. So WeFunder, Republic, Seedinvest, and so forth, that's really targeting people who are looking to do investments. They're not looking for a product. They're not looking to be in line to get the newest, coolest refrigerator or stereo or whatever it might be that's on a Kickstarter campaign, for example. They're looking at businesses that they can invest in and that they believe will give them a return on investment. Gotcha. So, uh, when we started looking at this, um, as Murdad mentioned, we did some research as to what were the platforms that we thought would give us the best opportunity to be able to make all that happen. And uh, Kiva actually was um, one of the organizations that connected us to WeFunder initially before we had uh, figured out who they were before that. So I'll say that first. And then the second part to your question in terms of uh, how our particular campaign has gone so far, we've been very very fortunate to have a, a great start to our campaign. I think I'd give a couple of tips to uh, other entrepreneurs looking to, to start a campaign on a similar platform. I would say that it really helps to show early traction. So if they can find a few anchor investors to, to be a part of the campaign to sort of get things going. People, from what we've heard and in our experience as well, it seems that people feel a lot more confident to invest in something when they see there's already some traction. If your campaign is stuck at zero, and you're looking for that first person to come in, they might be asking themselves, why has nobody else come in yet, right? Ah, we, we human beings are herd animals too, aren't we? So. <laughs> yeah. Well, so did you have one or two of those kind of lined up when you launched your kicks or your uh, WeFundMe campaign? Yes, yes. We, oh, uh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, we had two people in particular that we convinced to sort of take their investment through the platform as opposed to um, maybe more traditional means. And, you know, that's, it's it a lot of credit to them because, you know, this was new for them, but, you know, they believed in the ability of crowdfunding to help basically leverage their own investments, right? To, to help their, the initiative that they had just invested in take it to the next level. 
Yeah. And uh, that was big for us, having those two yeah. people on board and really believing in what we were trying to accomplish. And also in, in the aspect of what crowdfunding can bring to, to what we were trying to do in terms of raising. All right. Well, I, I'm going to ask you to hold your thoughts there. I want to continue that conversation and talk maybe just a little bit more about tips for successfully using crowdfunding or maybe even tips for being successful with pitch competitions because you've obviously figured out some of the ways to do that. But first, we need to take a minute and pause for station identification and a word from a couple of our sponsors. So, Mardan and Aaron, hang on, and we'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. This is Doris Nagel. I'm the host of the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We are here chatting this week with Aaron Olson and Mirdad Arsman, who are the co-founders of a very, very interesting company called Novomoto. Now, before we took a break for station identification, we were talking a little bit about raising money, which is always a pretty important topic for, uh, for most businesses, either finding more customers or finding money, one of the two or, or both. Um, and Aaron was sharing with us some of his tips for successfully using crowdfunding as a platform. And I think, Aaron, you, you mentioned basically kind of preceding the launch on the crowdfunding platform with a couple of major investors who were ready to jump on early was one of the things you attributed to, to the success of your campaign there. And I was just going to ask you whether you did anything else. Like, you know, did you advertise? Did you use social media a lot? Did you write friends and family? I mean, you know, one of the most common, I think, misconceptions about crowdfunding is that you just sort of stick it out there and people are going to see it and just throw gobs of money at you. And, you know, there's a lot of bitterly disappointing <laughs> people on crowdfunding platforms who just, you know, the crickets chirp and they keep chirping. So obviously that didn't happen to you, but I'm just curious whether you did any did any other things that you could recommend or might suggest to people using crowdfunding and being successful at it. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, so let me say a couple things one with regards to the preparation before the campaign goes live and then two what to do when you're live and how to reach out to as wide of an audience as possible so for the first part we were really fortunate we got a chance to work with a great videographer who came with us to kinshasa to take photos testimonials and video of our team in action and I think that went a long way in crafting what our, our eventual video for our campaign ended up being. But on top of that, we took a good amount of time crafting the information that's actually on our campaign. And that happened with a couple of drafts and a lot of back and forth between our own team, Radat and I, and our, uh, and our team on the ground, along with people working at WeFunder. And they do a great job helping you understand how you can craft your messaging in a way that helps a really grab people's attention and helps them get a better grasp of what we're trying to accomplish as a company. And then from yeah. the second point of it, in terms of promoting the campaign once it's live, again, this is a shout out to, to WeFunder again. They have their own network. And last I heard, the network is something around 300,000 people who have invested on the WeFunder platform. 
So because they already have that network, we were able to leverage that with what we had put together for our campaign materials. But then two, mm -hmm. we have our own network. We send right. out newsletters, we have our own social media platforms. So we do the best we can to get our, the message out about what we're trying to do. And the combination of those two networks has really helped us grow things. So their network obviously being larger than ours, uh, the WeFunder network has brought in many more investors than ours have, but both of them are very important. And obviously they leverage each other to be able to get the message out even further. Fantastic advice. I hope that's helpful to some of the many businesses that are either trying to use crowdfunding or, you know, are hopeful about the, the results. So hey, the other thing that we started to talk about before the break was all these pitch competitions. I mean, it's really a, a, an amazing list that you shared of successes that you've had at pitch competitions. Merdad, what would you attribute the success at these pitch competitions? Because there obviously is an art to doing it. Maybe it's even an art to picking which ones are the right fit from the get-go. What advice would you offer? I mean, what do you what do you attribute your success at these pitch competitions to? Great question, Doris. Um, so I will say probably three things. Number one, I say that people care a lot about hearing a story as opposed to uh, basically just giving them a lot of information where we don't tell them how they're related to each other. Yeah, um, I remember features and benefits is what I call it. People yes, are very I, attracted to their features and benefits, and that's absolutely. not that's not what you were trying to do. Yes, and it was a learning curve for us to be honest. Uh, being in academia for many years, we were used to provide one type of presentation that works well in the scientific community. But then when we started to give pitches in the competitions, I mean, we, it was very quick for us to figure out that we got to change something. Otherwise, no one is going to be interested. And, oh, and a lot of credit goes to people to sleep, right? <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, so a lot of credit in that part goes to Energy Trust. Basically, I, I don't uh, forget the moments that we gave them a pitch that we thought is going to be good. And they put us in touch with a design group that basically they wanted everyone to have a certain quality of pitch before we, uh, uh -huh. people pitch at So when both Erin and I looked at the output of the, we gave them an input and the output was amazing. We were like, this is the best pitch I've ever seen, like pitch deck in my life. And that was yeah. a big change into our, into our pitch uh, basically and story afterwards. So that was number one. I would say uh, having a story and having a good, high-quality slide deck that people clearly understand what your point is on every single slide. And it, the, the trick is that it should be very simple. We were always thinking about putting a bunch of information on each slide, <laughs> but what we got was the simplest possible thing that could convey those information. Um, so number two was knowing the audience. Early on, if uh, when we were pitching, a lot of people were not relating to our message simply because it was in a different country and a continent, different part of the world. People may have not heard about it or have never traveled there. So they, they could not really 
connect. But after discussing with a few people that were sort of experts in that area, we quickly figure out that there should be a connection. And that's, mm-hmm. that's my point towards knowing our audience. So um, in, in the subsequent pitches, we always had a slide that said, this is the situation in Congo. Now, as a reference point, this is what we have in Madison. Or if you were pitching to people in Boston, you would right. compare it to Boston area or any area that makes sense for the local audience so that they connect with uh, what we were giving to them. Brilliant. Yes. So third point, uh, to be honest, is uh, to apply for a lot of places. It's sort of a numbers game. So we did not stop at one or two competitions. Basically, we had uh, an intern in one summer, and his task was to figure out every single possible pitch (laughs) in the States or even in outside of the States. We had the chance to uh, give a pitch in Canada. And we applied for a bunch of events in, in, in even in Europe. So we applied for a lot of competitions, whatever we could apply. And then we get the opportunity to pitch in some of them. And we were fortunate enough to win some of them. So that's basically, I think, if, if any company puts the effort to go and find all those opportunities and then apply for all those, of course, they're going to hear a lot of no's. But then they're going to hear more yeses as opposed to just sitting and apply for one or two local places. That is that is a great story and great advice, Pradhan. Thanks for sharing that. Let's shift away from funding. I want to talk a little bit more about your business itself and the process of creating the company and building it. What were some of the biggest roadblocks that maybe unexpected bumps in the road? challenges you didn't anticipate. Aaron, why don't you go first? Sure. So distribution, I think, is one of the things that we didn't have a full grasp of when we first started the company. And what I mean by that is just how we're getting systems to the end customers and some of the challenges that are involved in that. So I'll give you an example. Congo, especially as you go further away from from the downtown or more the communes, as they're called in in, uh Kinshasa that are closer to downtown, you find that a lot of places don't really have addresses. Or if there are addresses, the people who live there don't know what those addresses are. So what ends up happening? Yeah, yeah. So what ends up happening is that to be able to do an install at a customer who's recently paid the upfront payment to get that installation, you have to have different reference points. And sometimes technicians need to get in touch with the salesperson who closed the deal. And these this particular thing isn't necessarily that big, but it's not something you come in necessarily having an appreciation for. I'll bet right? not, yeah. Yeah. Along with that, uh, Murdad may have had a little more experience in this th- than I had, but neither of us really had a, a lot of experience in terms of what international logistics are like, in oh. terms of what it means to be able to buy a product yeah. in one part of the world, make sure it gets on the right sort of vessel, whether it be a plane or, or, a, or a boat and arrives at your end destination and then how to go through and make sure customs are cleared because it isn't the same process as, as you know, going through Amazon or going through another provider and, and just sort of saying, I'm buying this online and it shows up at this other address. You know, when you're right. dealing, especially in Congo with the way that things work with uh, their customs agency, there's a lot more interaction and manual interaction that's required before something is actually cleared and then ready to go to the end customer. So in terms of distribution, that's another piece of that that we had to learn on the fly. 
And, yeah. you know, of course, there were some setbacks along the way, things we didn't do correctly or didn't know how to do correctly. And fortunately, we've been able to learn and improve along the way. You know, I was just thinking about your business model since you're really fronting the cost, the capital cost of these solar generators. You have a kind of a cash flow issue, right? In terms of you've got to invest in all this equipment and it, event, it gets eventually paid off over time. But it's not like you buy a, I don't know, $1,000 generator. I have no idea what they cost. I'm just pulling numbers out of the air. But, you know, and you place it. It's a while before your $1,000 gets paid back, right? Uh, yes, it's uh, absolutely a capital intensive business. It's more difficult to finance it early on as we are right now. As we grow and show traction and have the financial statements to back it up, we will definitely have access to traditional loans and line of credit by financial institutions. But at this point, we mainly need to raise equity rounds to be able to cover those costs. That would make sense. So how do the two of you work through challenges? I mean, every business has roadblocks. I'm sure there have been days where you're just like, I don't know if we're going to make it. I don't know if we can really do this. What keeps you going? How do you find the inspiration to just keep pushing at it until you find a way through that wall. Aaron, why don't you take that? Sure. I think it starts all with the vision. You know, I think Murdad and I both saw this particular problem and lack of electricity in Sub-Saharan Africa as, as one problem worth solving, right? A why that could get you up in the morning and say that what I'm doing is important in the world. And then two, that there were solutions and that our business model included solutions to, to ways of addressing this problem, at least for certain segments of the market. So I think those two things basically anchor our inspiration and our, and our willingness to go ahead and do what's necessary to be able to keep our business going. You brought up another interesting point. I mean, it's, it isn't every day that you feel like things are going well, and there are some days where you run into a problem where you may think, man, this is serious, and you don't necessarily <laughs> see the way around this immediately, right? And, you know, those are days where you, you look yourself in the mirror and if you believe in what you're doing and you believe that you really can accomplish it, you, you do your best to go forward. But uh, we yeah. also understand that, you know, even when that happens, there could be things that you can't control. So right. we try not to keep our mind on those things and try to focus on things that we can control and keep our, our eyes on the vision of what we're trying to accomplish in, in the broad context. I think that's great advice. Anything to add to that, Murdoch? Uh, just one thing, actually. Uh, so in some of those tough days that we were chatting about, I actually remember Aaron saying, there is always another way. And that stuck with me because we were facing some of those challenges, obviously, for the first time. We did not have the full information to make a decision. The situation in that particular case didn't look good. But then having these um, intentions and spirit inside ourselves both and just Aaron coming out and saying there's always another way mm -hmm. that's very important for us sort of the founders of the company to get back to our feet again and then basically um, continue this path and give it out to the rest of the team members so they can feel again hopeful and uh, can continue their path. Well, hopefully you've, your videographer has helped you find some very 
happy, smiling customers. And that has got to be a great source of inspiration. You know, when you think about some of the frustrating parts, some of the administrative things that are not nearly as exciting or glamorous, but need to get done. But seeing smiles on the faces of some of those people must be a very, very inspirational thing, a very heartwarming piece of what you do. Yes, absolutely. I I read and I lifted this from your website that you have a goal of getting solar energy, clean electricity to 1 million families by 2026. And I don't know if that's just in the Congo or if that's in all of sub-Saharan Africa. But talk about your goals for expansion and how you see yourself growing and evolving if things go according to plan. Aaron, why don't you take that first? So a million installs, a million families or small businesses is our goal for 2026. And for us, we view that not only in terms of installs in Congo, but also installs in other countries in sub-Saharan Africa. And the reason why we see that as a goal is not only do we believe it's achievable, but also it's it's not even enough. We feel like doing that is a big step for a lot of people. But in another context, you know, it's a small portion of solving the problem for nearly a billion people just in sub-Saharan Africa who don't have access to reliable electricity. So we want to be as aggressive as possible. We want to also operate in a number of sectors within the energy space. That is to say, as Murdad mentioned before, going to larger systems, systems that can provide uh, refrigeration and, and other and power other appliances that can help make other small business opportunities available for, for people in Congo and in other countries. To make that possible, obviously, we have to succeed with where we're at now, and we have to continually find the resources necessary to scale things up. So we're really focused right now and trying to make everything we're trying to do for 2020 successful. And we know that with that in hand, we'll have the opportunity to be able to keep things growing and find the right resources to take things to the million installs we want to get to by 2020. Talk a little bit about, um, and maybe Murdad, you can comment on this. Talk a little bit about sub-Saharan Africa in general. You know, it's, the Congo is a pretty huge country. It's 80 million people, as you mentioned, but I, I also know just having looked at a map, it's a, it's a pretty big place. I guess, how would you know when you're ready to expand to a whole different country? Because I'm sure learning how to do and get things done in the Congo was probably a pretty steep learning curve, although probably helped by the fact that Aaron, that you're from there, but I, you know, you go to a new country and suddenly things are done somewhat differently. And talk a little bit about the process for expanding, but expanding mindfully and with thought and preparation. Yes, uh, that is absolutely one of the important uh, topics that we have discussed internally between us. Interestingly enough, uh, we have always been approached uh, with people. They basically see what we do, and they are from a particular country in sub-Saharan Africa, and they reach out to us, and we had meetings with um, many of them, at least uh, six or seven uh, groups from different countries in sub-Saharan Africa to basically expand what we do in Congo. Mm -hmm. Now, we definitely appreciate uh, that they reach out to us and we appreciate their vision. 
However, for us, as you mentioned, to make sure that what we do is successful and to make sure that we can return the uh, investment to our investors, we need to be careful. So we have a basically a set of uh, guidelines for ourselves that whenever someone reaches out to us, we'll discuss the opportunity with them in that uh, basis. Basically, we share with them that these are the steps that we need to make sure as a, a basically preliminary research phase on the market. There's some data that we need to have and there are some basic logistic steps that we need to be aware of how they're getting done before we can make a decision of, okay, now this country might be a good opportunity. Then think about a small test package and yeah. funding for that to, to give it a test and see if it goes well or not. So there are multiple steps in place that we try to make sure every market that we get the chance to get in, at least they satisfy the requirements to avoid the kind of mistakes we've done in the past and the lessons that we've learned. Well, right. And then to avoid becoming victims of your own success, you know, by spreading yourself too thin or in too many places at once. So I think that's very wise advice and it's good to have a process like that because most businesses worry about how do I how do I get people interested, how do I find people? But sometimes you have to be prepared for the opposite, which is everybody wants it, but you can't really do a good job. It's flattering to be wanted, but you can't always do a good job being all those things and at least not initially, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. And because of that, to be honest, it's sometimes difficult to tell that to people that have or come to us with a lot of passion. Um, a lot of them happen to live in the States. They have left their home country many years back. They know they live that life of difficulty, how mm -hmm. it is difficult for them or was difficult for them to do their homeworks at home when there is nothing. And uh, they just wanted to help, which is awesome, which is great. But then at the same time, we need to think about how we can do it in a framework that is a for-profit business as we are doing it. And it's more sustainable as opposed to doing uh, donations are awesome or great. But usually when you do something for profit is more sustainable, meaning that you can help more people. So all right. these thoughts that we put through any project that comes our way is basically a way for us to say, we're going to do this in a sustainable way if we choose to do this. Right. Well, um, we're almost out of time. I knew the time would fly by quickly with two gentlemen as articulate and passionate as you both are and a, a concept, a business concept that's so interesting and relatable. Before we wrap up, I'm curious whether you have through all of your learning, any words of advice for businesses that are starting up or, or maybe putting it differently, words of advice that you would have given your younger self when you were first getting started? Aaron, why not, I'll start with you with that question. That's a great question. Um, I think I would start by suggesting that people go into something that they really have a passion for or that they really feel like when, when they're tired, stressed this is something that they're still going to be able to to find it within themselves to work on two i would recommend that they find a great team people that they can work with people 
that they have confidence in that can help them build the idea and build the company around that idea. And then third, I would say to find the right sets of advisors and mentors who have the right types of experience that can help them avoid some pitfalls or, or <laughs> avoid some of the problems that inevitably will will arise and find people who can help them navigate problems when, when those uh, problems arise as well. Uh, um, great, great advice. Uh, my dad, anything you have to add to that? What would you tell your younger self? Basically a couple things. One is that um, things are usually more difficult and they take longer and they are more expensive than any estimates that entrepreneurs would have. So <laughs> yeah, I would so say <laughs> have a safety factor of a factor of two or something and multiply that to every estimate you make. Even if you think you're conservative, do that multiplication by two and then you're going to get some results that more and realistic. And second, I would say, uh, don't be afraid of doing some small tests and even fail. And that's a great way of finding out which is going to work, which path is going to work for you and which path is not, as opposed to just waiting and guessing. I think mm -hmm. uh, I would say to my younger self that I should have failed more and I should have learned more quickly as uh, as I was running through my, my education or business. Very interesting. Uh, all right, last question. Uh, probably the, the one of the most important questions is, if people are interested in learning more about Novomoto or just wanting to talk to either or both of you about, maybe it's about crowdfunding, maybe it's about how to do a pitch competition, uh, maybe it's just how can I help? What's the best way for people to reach you? And, you know, including that, how they can learn about your funding campaign if they want to learn more as well. Yeah, so we encourage everyone listening to reach out to Murdad and I at founders at novomoto.net for any questions about the company. And additionally, if people would like to check out more about our WeFunder campaign, that can be found at www.wefunder.com slash novomoto. Well, I want to thank both of you so much for being on the show. I am, I think I mentioned to you, a fellow Badger myself, and uh, I'm a former war fellow, so I'm a very, very grateful Badger alumni, and I'm always, always happy to hear from other fellow Badgers, and especially ones that I can help uh, sing the praises of and share their successes with. So once again, I want to say thank you, Aaron and Murdad. Thank you so much for being on the show today and for sharing your story. Thank you so much, Thank Doris. you for having us. All right, everybody. Um, to listen to an on-demand recording uh, podcast of today's show, along with other free information and resources for entrepreneurs, you can go to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show page at Lakes radio.org or to my consulting site which is www.globalocityservicesplural.com and be sure to join us next Saturday. Our guest will be Christina Fontenelle. She also works to make the lives of people better but in a totally different segment of the market. She uses dance, music, and art to help victims of trauma. It'll be a great listen as well so be sure not to miss it. And until then, 
I'm your host, Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring.